0: I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others, instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds
1: hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two
0: simple questions. What's the story? And what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us, let's tell a good story today. How's it hanging, Jonathan?
1: Oh man, I knew you'd bring it back from last week. And actually, I kind of dig it. I think we should stick with it. <laughs> it's uh hanging okay. I guess i I'm fine. I'll stick with that. <laughs> how are you? How's it hanging, Seth?
0: Good. I never know how to answer that question either. It's like it's just like a weird way to ask. How are yeah. you, I guess? But it's How's just
1: what hanging?
0: Yeah, I just never really know what Oh, to do with I just
1: that. think I figured it out, and I think we should move on.
0: Okay. <laughs> do <Deal>. you <laughs> Moving on. What would you do <laughs> in this particular situation if you had the Gospel of John, which other synoptic gospel would you keep if you could only keep one? Ugh.
1: <laughs> well, I saw I saw some interaction either from you or our podcast account on Twitter with the person who ranked the four Gospels where you just said, This is how you start a fight. He knows me. <laughs> I think I'd have to go I'd have to go with Luke. Luke has been my favorite. Luke's been the one I've studied the most. And I just I appreciate the ways that Luke frames kind of like we talked about last week. It frames Jesus as a person who often spent time on the margins. I also like how the scholar Luke Timothy Johnson talks about Luke as being a prophetic book that Jesus is kind of pulling back the curtain on how things really are in the world. Hmm. and I really resonate and connect with that. Um, so yeah, I'd go with Luke.
0: That's a good one. I would go. With They're that. all good. They are all good, but everyone knows that the best one is Mark. Except Everyone apparently. does not know this. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the best one.
1: Mark's the weirdest, which is part of the reason that it's so good. Yeah, uh, it's the best narrative. Like, it's the best story. I mean, <laughs> I know there are the interesting conversation about this is how certain details deviate. Not only between John and the other Gospels, but even among Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Like, the story's pretty similar across the board. And I think (laughs) Luke is better.
0: The story is pretty similar, but I just think Mark does the best job telling it. Mark does have... He said by saying immediately, like 147 times, it keeps you just, like, keeps you in the story and, like, it's moving. So I'm trying to think of a comparison or a reference for how
1: I think about Mark compared to some of the other Gospels. So John, I feel like, is written by a, like, Bible professor or a theology professor. It's, like, so
0: in-depth. It's really dense, yeah.
1: And instead of of focusing, like, on the story, Jesus just always launches into these, like, deep theological expositions on who he is. And I'm like, who would listen to a person do this at any point? (laughs) In comparison, Mark feels like it's written by a fifth grader. And that doesn't that doesn't necessarily make it bad, but just pay it like paying attention to the tone, the structure, and then like if you have the opportunity to go deeper into like the original writings, you see just yeah, like it's
0: really the Greek's terrible. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's not, like a it's fifth not grade well Greek. Written. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> which is why I like it because I can actually kind of understand some of it sometimes.
0: Yeah, Luke's hard. Luke's Greek is so complex like luke's first sentence this is all the time i had in greek english translations usually split into like at least four sentences but it's all one sentence in greek
1: fair at the risk of going too deep into (laughs) linguistics and gospel (laughs) problems i think we should move into our
0: text for today okay well, our text is from Matthew, so it's not from either of the ones that we picked. So it's apparently from our keep. collective, our
1: collective least favorite gospel.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Oh man, here we go. This is Matthew chapter twenty-two, beginning in verse thirty-four from the New Jerusalem Bible. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they got together and. To put into the test, one of them put a further question Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second resembles it you must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law, and the prophets too. While the Pharisees were gathered round, Jesus put to them this question. What is your opinion about the Christ? Whose son is he? They told him, David's. He said to them, Then how is it that David, moved by the Spirit, calls him Lord, where he says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Take your seat at my right hand, till I have made your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one could think of anything to say in reply, and from that day, no one dared to ask him any further questions. Awesome. (laughs) So Seth, why'd you go with the New Jerusalem Bible for this passage from Matthew?
0: I love the New Jerusalem Bible. I think it tends to just read really smoothly. And that's partially because it's what's called a translation twice removed. So they translated from the original text in in Greek and Hebrew into French. And then they translated from French into English. So I hmm. guess like as you keep translating it, you can make the argument we get a little bit further away. But we also... Uh, get like a really nice flow. I think partially because right. it is from French, which is which tends to flow really beautifully. I had another copy of my New Jerusalem Bible, and I lent it to someone because I told them, "Oh, it flows so beautifully, like you can just keep reading." And I never got it back, so I guess they liked it.
1: I was gonna say, I guess you were <laughs> right. They just yeah. kept reading. Yeah, they, which is
0: good. <laughs> that was that was the goal, but
1: I always I always feel conflicted. I'm pretty sure I had a Bible stolen from me once. And it was like a Bible that I liked. But if someone's going to steal something from you, like I guess it's good that it's a Bible cuz then they have a Bible. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sorry I'm sorry that they kept your Bible cuz it sounds okay. like a, it sounds like something that you liked.
0: Yeah, well I did like that translation, but I got another one. So oh, it, it all worked out. Is there anything in the New Jerusalem Bible that stuck out to you while you were reading? Okay,
1: so there were two two things that stood out the most. Okay, The first was kind of the general structure of this passage, because we usually stop at verse 40 when we talk about the greatest commandment. So the Pharisees put a question to Jesus, and Jesus answers it. With this really profound answer that's, become the foundation for so much it's like such an important thing too like this is the most important is loving God and loving your neighbor but the fact that it's immediately followed in Matthew by Jesus being real sassy and just kind of shutting down everything at the end and I love the last verse and from that day no one dared to ask him any further questions I just love the structure of the back and forth because I think it it adds a dynamic to the conversation that's less about Jesus just like spitting out amazing theological truths and puts it more in the context of the Pharisees are trying to get him in a trap and Jesus just turns it right around on them, mm-hmm. which maybe adds a different tone to the whole greatest commandment section. But the thing, the specific thing that stood out to me the most was the way that this translation renders the introduction to you must love your neighbor as yourself is the second resembles it oftentimes I've seen the language that I guess is pretty similar to it that the second is like it or it's it seems to be language that intends to connect the two but this one feels more explicit it feels more like to love God with your heart your soul and your mind is to love your neighbor as yourself and vice versa and I almost wonder if in this setting, Jesus is kind of extending that idea from the the Torah, the foundational scriptures of his faith, and extending and connecting to another Torah idea from Leviticus of loving your neighbor mm-hmm. as yourself, connecting those two more explicitly together, not in a one-two hierarchy, but like 1A and 1B, mm-hmm. because it's still hmm. titled... The greatest commandment right Mm -hmm. and yet he says on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets so it's it just feels ambiguous as to whether or not they are like one in the same or if they are just really connected
0: i think you make a great point and it's interesting to think about what question they asked him like they asked what is Mm -hmm. the greatest commandment right so they ask for one And I think it would maybe be a little disingenuous if he was like, okay, it's these two, which is how I've usually been reading it. But I think think I've been hearing it the way you've been talking about it more recently. Like these are maybe one A and one B. Like he really does tie them together. Like they're somehow kind of mirrors of each other.
1: Well, I've heard the same thing actually about the passage about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians Mm -hmm. and how the fruit of the spirit is love because that's the first one that comes and then the rest of the words are descriptors of what love means in terms of being a fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if there's a similar connection here of like this is this is the greatest commandment and this is an an aspect of that or this is this is a way that that becomes real in the world around us. And it's important to highlight that Loving your neighbor as yourself is only a meaningful practice if you actually know how to love and appreciate yourself.
0: yourself, (laughs) That's interesting to me because this almost assumes that you know how to do that. Mm -hmm. You must love your neighbor as yourself. To me, the assumption is that people already know how to love themselves and they have to apply that to others. But I think that that's just that assumption sometimes that people have seen. They struggle with loving themselves, with accepting parts of who they are. I've thought about that a lot, actually. And sometimes I think people make a big deal of that, especially for people in ministry. It's like, oh, you better learn how to love yourself and rest so you can love other people. I don't know if you've ever gotten that. I think that it hangs on on this line.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, and it's kind of what... Uh, jared when he was on our show a few weeks ago brought up as well that oftentimes that instruction to clergy and leaders makes that task of loving (laughs) yourself more of a task and a chore rather than the gift that allows you to experience more abundant life and allows you to actually love your neighbor effectively (laughs) rather than another to-do list item i'm i'm wrestling with some of that too and i I don't know. I know that Jesus' question and response is like interesting from a structural standpoint. I don't really understand like what's going on in that back and forth, but maybe you have some more information behind behind that <laughs> and why it's important that David David's son can't be his lord
0: or what. <laughs> Yeah, so it is sort of a confusing section. But I think what the gist is, is Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, in which David writes, the Lord declared to my Lord. And what he's, what he's saying, I think, is God declared to the Messiah. So the question that Jesus asks is, if the Messiah is David's Lord, how can the Messiah also be his son? And the assumption is that someone who's your son can't also be your lord. Mm. Did that clear it up little, at least a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Okay.
1: And even even the question of someone who is your descendant who may or may not be present in that moment, David identifying them as present. Yeah. There's at least there's at least some, you know, some sort of contradiction there, if not if not just some tension.
0: Yeah, it's apparently a hard enough question. That the Pharisees are just like, we're out. We're not asking this yeah. guy any more <laughs> questions. Like, I don't, I don't know, man. Maybe You've got to figure that one out. Yeah. Just, I'll <laughs> just go to
1: 7-Eleven and drink some Slurpees and sadness or something like that. I don't know what's going on with they're them.
0: Just, they're just like, I don't know. This question is confusing. Just let it go. It's interesting to think about the second part in light of the first. Because like, I'm with you. I think I usually just read this section on the greatest commandment in isolation and then I just kind of forget whatever that anything comes after it at all let alone what it is it's interesting that this whole section what happens before is Jesus is telling parables uh, mostly that condemn the Pharisees then they try and trap him and then he he responds with this cryptic question like to get that off his back yeah is there anything else you noticed? No, I think I'm
1: ready to move on to anything else that you have or moving on to conversation about what's the point.
0: One thing I just wanted to know is that this passage on the Greatest Commandment occurs in all of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that was the inspiration for what would you do in this particular situation mm-hmm. question. With that, I've been trying to think of a way to like enliven this passage that's that's so well known. Like, how can I make it hit again, if that makes sense? Hmm. Like I think when Jesus says it, it's it's shocking to the Pharisees. And I I like keep trying to recreate that. And I haven't I haven't really come up with anything. Oh man. I guess my question is like, how are the two commandments related to each other and what does it look like for me to just love god i guess and i'll just speak for myself it's so hard to love something or someone who's so abstract sometimes
1: right and it's not like and isolating it from the second part it's not like loving god with your heart your soul and your mind it's not a a way of clearing that up right (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, okay, can you give me a little bit more? Like, can you tell me a little bit more more what that looks like? And maybe that's where the second commandment comes in. Yeah, I've been thinking that's you know, how I've been thinking about it.
1: You know, it starts it starts there with this more abstract concept. You know, the measure the measure of your love is not the these abstract concepts, but it's the measure of how your neighbor is treated because there is something that's inextricably linked between how we view a relationship with God and how we view our relationships with our neighbors and those that are around us.
0: I think you're right. That's how I've been thinking about it more recently. And this translation helped me to put that together, that the second resembles it, that they're somehow parallel to each other. If you have two people who resemble each other, it's not like, okay, we have we have one person and then like over here we have another person who's who's very different, right? If they actually resemble each other, they're probably like really similar. They look really close. And
1: honestly, Seth, I think that helps me think about kind of your first question as we shifted the transition about how this passage could land in a way that shocks us or catches us off guard. And I think the way we're talking about it more explicitly connecting loving god with loving your neighbor could be one of those ways at least in mm-hmm. certain settings mm-hmm. because it feels like going into a community that their worship experience is quote all about you connecting with god it's all about your personal relationship with jesus going <laughs> yeah. going a, cla- that's a going classic in- line <laughs> Right. Going into that setting, though, and saying it is most important for you to love God, and it is most important for you to love your neighbor. And saying that the way that you live out your faith, the way that, as we said last week, you do the hard work of love, that is what matters. That's what's measured. And saying that in a setting where people are so bent out of shape when you say, suggest anything that you do matters because it's by god's grace that we're saved not by works so that no one can boast whenever you say that in that kind of community you begin to highlight a tension and an inconsistency with a theology that says my faith is all about the action of god and what god has done for me and leaves out the part of the conversation that's really just the next steps from that point
0: i think you're on to something that if we want to make this shocking somehow we have to ask the question of who who our specific audiences right it's really hard to make it shocking kind of for everyone but if we narrow for our for the audience... experts
1: of the law it would have been shocking for them to think about someone saying eh, you could sum up most of it in one thing <laughs> yeah which is probably why they were asking the question yep. and so the the question coming back now it's it begins to look different depending on who you who you say it to and who you who who asks you this question so what contexts or audiences are you thinking of
0: i mean i've been thinking of i mean i'll be honest i've been thinking of our political situation right now what Mm. what does this look like how is this an affront to the way that our country's goals are oriented right now
1: I was listening to a podcast, I think just yesterday, about kind of the finances of campaign advertising specifically. And they were doing research about essentially where money was being spent, what voters would technically be most expensive, kind of like hmm. it was really hmm. interesting. But the the study that they also did was like, what's the what's the outcome of these political ads? You know, what are the hoped for outcomes? And they yeah. talked about how you're either most political ads are either trying to con, you know trying to convince undecided voters are trying to mobilize base voters to actually get out and vote and and quite frankly trying to demobilize the opponents base voters and mm. so in those three settings, and of course there's overlap, there's not a clean cut between, like you can accomplish both or all three things depending on the ad. But what they highlighted as the main outcome of the ad is not like a, a wide variety and like, oh, I was really undecided about the presidential <laughs> campaign, but then I saw this 30-second commercial you know, in between innings of a baseball game, and I, I was just sold. I mean, maybe there's a few people like that. But the story that became told was people became more intensely rooted in their own narrative. Essentially, the ads served the purpose of bolstering their own perspective. Which sounds very similar to the types of echo chambers that we create online in our social media accounts. The kind of spaces where difference is not tolerated. And I, I, I truly wrestle with this, because there, I'm, I'm getting to a point with with many differences of opinion, differences of political opinion, theological opinion, that aren't things that I'm comfortable like agreeing to disagree on. Like <laughs> yeah, you and I me feel being, that. <laughs> you and me being comfortable agreeing to disagree on which of the synoptic gospels we'd keep <laughs> if we could only keep one. That I'm fine with. Yeah. Because I'm invested in that conversation. It's an interesting conversation, but at the, at the end of the day, it's not a it's not a belief that is actively causing someone harm. It's not actively taking away or suppressing someone's rights or humanity or dignity. Those are the spaces where I start to have a little more trouble. And so in our current political environment hearing that loving God means loving your neighbor or is somehow intrinsically connected. Those two things are intrinsically connected. That whole tension that I'm experiencing really comes up to the surface. And I begin to examine that practice of these strongly held beliefs of this strong conviction to not stand for injustice, not stand for the dehumanization Or the disenfranchisement of others. And this call and command that seems to say... I still need to love people... Who might disagree with me on this other stuff that... I hold to be really important in my life. Hmm. I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) Help, Seth.
0: (laughs) Jonathan, I don't know either. I've, I've been struggling with that too.
1: I know you and I share similar political views i don't think they're any secret to anyone who's given us the time of day to listen to a few episodes of our podcast but i'm wondering if that same struggle occurs with folks that are in a different place politically Mm. theologically Mm. than you and i are and again we're similar we're not the same but we're similar i don't know that struggle though helps me have a little empathy Which is something that i struggle to have oftentimes with folks who really diametrically disagree with my my viewpoints
0: you know for me it's it feels like splitting hairs like how how do we love the person as our neighbor and then disagree with the ideologies that they express which i which is so hard like it's those are so entangled, right It's like how what people think and express and believe are intertwined with who they are as people. It's difficult to to tease those out. This is a challenge to me too just to try and to try and keep loving and loving and loving even when I think that what someone believes or what someone does is is life limiting or disenfranchises others but i think that loving them doesn't always condone everything that they do right like right like loving them can also mean i mean like rebuking them and pushing back against them and like i think a good friend will tell you when they think you're you're wrong like you're doing the wrong thing that's when you have a good friend a good friend doesn't just uncritically bless everything that you say and do. That's, that's not a, a loving friend.
1: Yeah, and and you highlight something really important there. Love in the context of deep, meaningful relationship look can look corrective. Mm-hmm. It, and I don't say that in like a punitive way, but like in a way that says, "Hey, I see what you're doing, or I see what you're thinking. I'm seeing it differently, and let's talk about that." I think part of the pressure that we feel in our current moment is because our connectedness to so many others and our interest in doing good, I understand. I'm using that language intentionally, doing good. <laughs> not doing well, but doing good. Our interest in doing good is driving us to feel like we are responsible for every tweet that comes across our feed, for every headline that we read. And the correct, corrective love does not have... As much weight in spaces where there is no prior relationship. When you tell me that I've chosen the wrong synoptic gospel. <laughs> I'll listen to you. I think you're wrong. But in the same way, like you and I have the kind of relationship that if we saw each other going down a dangerous road. Or thinking something that wasn't, in cons- wasn't consistent with the ideals that we profess. I think you and I would call each other on that. And I think we've done that on this podcast even. Yeah, definitely. But but if I'm if I'm having a conversation with someone that I've just met or someone who I, I, I don't have a, a solid relationship with for one reason or another, and their entire interest is correcting my ideas or my beliefs or my actions, that doesn't feel like love to me. That feels like be, being an item on a checklist. It doesn't feel like loving and loving a neighbor as yourself. I think in this current moment, remembering the context of our relationships is important for where we spend our energy and attention and doing it in that corrective sense with our close family and friends not facebook friends by the way those are not all your close friends but just like those people that you know you can go to and know would go to you in a moment of crisis and say not what you wanted to hear but what you needed to hear and saving saving that corrective love for those spaces and using the gracious love the space opening love in in the other settings
0: i'm wondering if paul puts it this way if i speak in the tongues of people or of angels but if i don't have love then i'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal like we often hear that at weddings but i wonder if that's not What we've been moving toward as like the logical end to all of this. Eugene Peterson says, I'm a, I'm a swinging, rusty gate. (laughs) "Ah, Oh. That was (laughs) that.
1: (laughs) Nails on the chalkboard.
0: Yeah. I think you, I think you hit something with it. The relationships that we have with people who we love change the way that we receive criticism the way that we correct people whether we can correct them too right i mean it it might be worth trying but if i'm honest if we don't have some type of relationship with them and certainly if we're not doing it out of love then i think the likelihood of them being corrected of of repenting and kind of changing course is, is low I think there's this isn't in the book we don't have to put this in the book I think there's a reason that this is in all of the synoptics is because the authors realized like this is hard same with loving your enemies well, that, that's not in Morg but it's like when your teacher keeps saying something you're like this is probably going to be on the test this hmm. is probably important going to be on the test right it's like, <laughs> yeah I don't know I don't like that but
1: nope no, but I, I get what you're saying, though, and that that's such an important, important reason to think about why this is so emphasized across all the gospels. It, it you said it; it it stands out as particularly important and as particularly challenging, and it's almost like the communities these gospels were produced for needed this explicit reminder of how central this idea was to Jesus. And how central it needed to be to kind of encourage them to keep on in that journey
0: for them. Along with Matthew's audience who needed to hear this message, I think that it is always relevant. So with that, maybe this is the time to pray for us to love God and love our neighbor. Jonathan, will you pray with me? I'd love that. Gracious God, in Jesus Christ, you perfectly love God and your neighbors. Empower us, too, to speak truth and love, to use the relationships we've forged for good, and in the process, to love you with our heart, soul, and mind. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Jonathan, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're going to take a look at Micah chapter
1: 3, verses 5 through 12. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story,
0: Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it.